Um, welcome home. It's you started your career on this lot. I, I think the last time I was in this building was in all hands that uh, Terry Semmel and Bob Daly led. And that was probably sometime around 99 or Half 2000. the people in the room had not been you know, gone to school yet yeah. at that point, yeah. but yeah, it's um, so, great to be back. Yeah, so Jeff, you are, um, you would not describe yourself this way, but I will, kind of the godfather of the compassionate leadership movement. And we're in a moment of what some might call cold, callous, even inhumane leadership. Um, and I, I'd, I'd love to start just by hearing your thoughts on what compassionate leadership is today, how you practice it, what is it linked in, and how we should be thinking about that. Sure. So I think uh, it really starts with an understanding of uh, the meaning of compassion. And I think a lot of folks, certainly uh, I was this way, uh, have a tendency to think about compassion synonymously with empathy. And there are key distinctions between the two. Uh, empathy is feeling what another living thing feels. And compassion is maintaining enough space and distance between you and, say, another person such that you can do something about the way that they feel. And uh, the Dalai Lama does a great job of illustrating the difference. Uh, if you were to be walking along a mountainous trail, and uh, there's not a lot of this in Silicon Valley, maybe more so down here, if people are taking a hike, Will Rogers Park, and you were to come across somebody uh, with a boulder on their chest and they were suffocating, the empathetic response is to feel the same sense of suffocation. And if that were the case, you wouldn't be able to do anything about their suffering. And uh, the compassionate response is to recognize that they're suffering and to potentially draw on a previous experience that you've had where maybe you've been suffering uh, in a similar way and then do everything within your power to get the boulder off of their chest. And in a work environment, I, I don't think it has to go as far as alleviating suffering. Uh, for me, uh, when I think about managing compassionately within uh, a company, it's really about putting myself in the other person's shoes uh, to help them achieve an objective, whatever that may be, that hopefully is relevant to both of us, and we're aligned on that. And all too often, I mean, probably every single person uh, here today uh, has had tension or a conflict with a coworker or a colleague, and it may have happened earlier today. And we have a tendency to knee-jerk and assume nefarious intention on the part of the other person. We will assume that they are trying to undermine us, that there's some political motivation behind their disagreement, that they're ignorant, how could they possibly disagree with one's own right opinion? As opposed to becoming a spectator to your own thoughts, getting out of your head, understanding uh, why there's tension, why there's a conflict, putting yourself in their shoes, and understanding that perhaps they woke up, literally woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and they're just having a bad day. It's not you at all. Or you've triggered something in them that happened years ago that has nothing to do with you in that moment. Or perhaps they're feeling insecure or vulnerable because you know so much more about the subject and they don't want to let other people know that. There's an endless list of potential reasons uh, for that tension for them to be behaving the way that they are. And until we get out of our own heads and are reacting to them, that empathetic response I mentioned earlier, they're angry, now I'm angry. They're defensive, now I'm defensive. That just ratchets up and it gets worse and worse until there's nothing productive happening. And then that compounds throughout an office over time it erodes trust. And so if you can take a moment to understand what that person's trying to accomplish, where they're coming from, what their dreams are, their hopes are, their vulnerabilities, their insecurities, you are that much more likely to strike a connection with them, understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish, and then help them make that possible. And when you can do that throughout an organization and compound that across hundreds if not thousands of people, it starts to build very meaningful trust, very meaningful shorthand. And at the end of the day, 
a company's value is about the speed and quality of its decision making. And so if you can establish that rapport and relationship with your colleagues, it's not just about a virtue in terms of compassion. It's not just about doing or saying the right thing. It's about doing business better and creating more value. So what's happening nationally is triggering a lot of very real, very deep feelings for a lot of people. Um, I, I have to believe at LinkedIn and in all of our companies. Um, Dan Rather was on stage this morning saying that business leaders have to stand up and speak up. And I, I don't hear him just saying that uh, in the context of, of stopping what some would argue is a slide toward autocracy, but also because the CEO's role historically has been advance shareholder value, only speak out politically when, when it's in that interest. Um, but it feels like business leaders now are starting to think, do I have to start speaking out because this matters to my team, um, to my, my clients, my partners, et cetera. So how, how should business leaders be thinking about that role in this world? Uh, I think there's at least two uh, convergent trends taking place that is really accelerating the change uh, in terms of the role of the CEO. Uh, certainly within high-profile companies where there's a spotlight on that CEO and potentially their opinion. Uh, the first is multiple stakeholders, that it's not just about creating shareholder value. Mark Benioff has been championing this uh, dynamic for years now. I think World Economic Forum, you saw Blackstone recently come out. And uh, it's true, we, we all have multiple stakeholders. It's not just about investors. Investors are important, but so are your customers, so are your employees, so is the community, so are analysts, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important for these multiple stakeholders to understand where you're coming from. Not only what you're trying to accomplish, which to some extent companies don't even share clearly. Uh, it's not just about the what, it's also about the how, your culture, your values, what you stand for. So I think that's one emergent trend. Uh, the other is the climate right now. And as you said, uh, there's, uh, we were just talking about compassion and tension. There's an awful lot of tension. There's an awful lot of tribalism right now where uh, people are kind of pulling back, and uh, certainly social platforms are hastening and accelerating uh, this move towards people we feel uh, most kinship with, most alignment with, as opposed to uh, making sure that we're pushing ourselves to understand where other people are coming from and to learn new perspectives and opinions, even if we disagree, and to disagree civilly and to have discourse and, and advance the cause. And so in light of that tension, I think CEOs are now in a position where historically we would try to always avoid political comment. I mean, with everything you've got, you avoid those discussions. You don't bring politics into the office. That was always one of the first principles of management and leadership, particularly publicly traded companies, because you're going to alienate someone. It's just not done. And now if you don't comment, if you don't say where you stand, particularly on certain issues, people will assume the worst. Nature abhors a vacuum. If you don't express what you believe and what you stand for, and you're leading an organization that touches hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, we've got companies touching billions of people now. These are extraordinarily influential companies. Their leaders, it's really important for people to understand where they're coming from. And so I think the confluence of these events has put CEOs into a position where you do need to make sure people understand what you're about. Now, do you need to comment on everything? No. And you have to be really mindful and really consistent about when you do comment. Because if you start commenting on everything, God forbid, you don't comment on one thing and the assumptions that will take place as a result of that. Conversely, if you don't comment on anything, people will project onto you what they believe you're about. And companies right now, like a lot of other organizations in the world, don't necessarily engender trust by default. 
So for the, certainly the CEOs that uh, I'm familiar with, that I have a chance to talk to and share notes with, there's a lot of consistency in terms of the approach. We may all have different perspectives, but it really starts with what the company's trying to accomplish. Is the event taking place? Is the issue that's come up? How does that relate to the company's mission? So that's one. Two is how meaningful and potentially disruptive is it to your employees? Because if you see news and you feel like, well, it's obvious where I stand, I don't have to explicitly say anything, but you've got employees who are deeply concerned, not only about the issue, but what you believe because you are leading them, they need to hear from you. And then third is where you personally stand on some of these issues. And CEOs are people too. And they have deeply held belief systems and convictions. And sometimes people are going to feel the need to speak out on things they believe in. So what, I mean, and, and look, Microsoft, um, LinkedIn now part of, joined with Princeton to file a DACA lawsuit. Microsoft has stepped out into a position it might not otherwise have taken before. Um, but, you know, for a CEO who's more reticent or a CEO who, whose personal politics don't align with the employee base one way or the other, um, what do you do then? And, and in particular, what if, what if a, a red line is crossed? Right, at least from whatever that's defined, Mueller gets fired, or you know, a Supreme Court order is expressly disobeyed, and there is almost a, a, a swelling within the ranks. So how does the CEO manage the personal with with the interest of, of those different shareholders? I don't think there's a cookie cutter solution at all, and I would never project onto other CEOs and other companies the way I would do something or the way we would do something at LinkedIn. Um, for us, it's about getting ahead of it. If you're reacting to this stuff, uh, it's going to be extremely challenging. I mean, in, in this day and age, it's never ending. So you need to make sure your employees know what you're about and what the company's about and what you're trying to accomplish and your vision and your mission and your target audience and your core value proposition and your strategic objectives and your measurable goals and most importantly, your culture and your values. And you've got to reinforce that and you can't just put it up on the walls of your offices or do the laminated cards for the wallet or the mouse pads or whatever companies are doing. And I'm not being critical of that dynamic. We do it ourselves at times, but you've got to mean it. You can't just talk the talk. You should never be in a position where you're only talking the talk as a leader. But in this day and age, you've got to walk the walk. And if you do that consistently and you do it when you need to be doing it, you can get in front of these things so that your employees understand where you're coming from and they're giving you the benefit of the doubt. And then sometimes you are going to need to say something. They need to hear from you. They need that leadership. They need to be inspired. They need to understand that there's a better way to do things. And hopefully, the company can be a part of that better way. So it, we're, one of the things that we're seeing is companies giving $1,000 bonuses with the left hand and laying off 10% of the workforce with the right hand, um, trying to get credit for one and, yeah. and, and avoid the other. Um, and that's obviously, in, in part, a result of a macro trend of the rise of automation, um, globalization, et cetera. Um, first question on that is um, there are those who are complete bulls. We've been through this before. The economy transforms. New jobs are created and complete bears. It's going to be Wally, -E, right? So wh which, which side do you come down on? So uh, we spent, given what LinkedIn does and given what we're trying to accomplish in creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce, that's the, the vision for north of 3 billion people in the global workforce. We spent a lot of time thinking about this, and uh, when we first started uh, to roll up our sleeves and dig in, we were looking for a definitive answer. We were looking to say, it's going to be net accretive, it's going to be net dilutive, jobs will be created, destroyed, etc. What we've come to learn is that in periods of great flux like this, people don't know the answers. There's a lot, there's so many variables. 
And uh, we're uh, very privileged to be in a position where by virtue of the data we have access to in the platform that we've created, we can help people make sense of all of this change. And we have the opportunity to work with uh, incredible minds. Uh, McKinsey Global Institute, uh, James Manika, for example, has been um, a wonderful uh, partner in terms of starting to make sense of all of this with uh, his organization's research efforts. And uh, here's an example. Uh, rather than predict exactly how many jobs we lost or are created, it's important to understand how many jobs can be altered, can be touched, how many workflows can be touched by automation. And today in the United States, that number is roughly 50%. This is already happening. This isn't science fiction. And uh, some of those jobs, some of those workflows will be displaced by automation. You will have robots. You will have uh, computing capabilities replacing uh, workers. But new jobs are going to be created. And then there's going to be this huge hybrid opportunity where the automation creates new roles and people are going to need to reskill. And we're very fortunate to be in a position where we can help people do that. So how, how does LinkedIn actually do that? I mean, what, what, what is LinkedIn's role in that helping people transition? So uh, zooming out for just a moment, we'll come back in and, and talk about specific execution and some of the initiatives. So I mentioned a moment ago our vision is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. The way in which we'll do that is by uh, developing the world's first economic graph. So a graph in technical terms is kind of a, a fancy scientific way of talking about uh, connecting nodes and uh, the relationships between these nodes and the information that flows between them, for example. Uh, so LinkedIn historically was a professional graph. We connected professionals. Facebook was a social graph, connected friends and family. Twitter's an interest graph, et cetera, et cetera. What we decided several years ago in light of the growth of the company was, whereas our vision started as a dream and our mission was to connect the world to professionals to make them more productive and successful, we decided we were going to try to operationalize our vision. And the way we'll do that, create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce is through this economic graph. So the economic graph is going to digitally map the global economy across six dimensions. Ultimately, we would like there to be a profile on LinkedIn for every one of those three billion plus people in the global workforce. A profile for every company in the world, and there's roughly 50 to 60 million plus companies in the world when you include small and medium-sized businesses. Digital representation for every job made available, a job opportunity in the world, digitally accessible is about 20 million of those at any given time. Digital representation for every skill required to obtain the jobs offered by those companies. Digital representation for every higher educational organization, university, vocational training facility that enables people to acquire those jobs and then a publishing platform that facilitates the way in which people share professionally relevant knowledge if they're interested in doing so. So in covering that skills gap, and you guys bought Linda, right? So you're, you're playing in this world a little bit as educator and, and, and you know, at least mindset shifter, if not trainer. Are, are you guys a, a platform for everyone to do that, or are you guys actually going to be the ones doing it? So well, with the acquisition of Linda, it starts to fulfill that skills dimension of the economic graph, and that was really the last piece of the puzzle. We have everything else in place in terms of infrastructure, processes, talent, and we're starting to generate meaningful scale in each of those areas. Uh, by way of example, when we started to operationalize this vision, we had 350,000 jobs available on LinkedIn. Today, we have 14 million jobs available on LinkedIn. So with regard to skills, it's one thing to capture and standardize data, and we've got tens of thousands of skills that have been captured on LinkedIn. It's another thing to offer the coursework that enables people to acquire those skills and get those jobs. And with the acquisition of Linda, we have the owned and operated coursework that enables us to do that through these wonderfully talented authors. I think over time, there's a really interesting opportunity to make that more of a platform or a marketplace where third parties can introduce their coursework, regardless of where they're coming from, individuals, organizations, institutions. 
And so we're in this really exciting position where imagine picking any locality anywhere in the world and we can understand the fastest growing jobs within that locality. We can understand uh, the aggregate skills of the workforce within that locality. We can measure the size of the gap between the two and where that gap becomes a red flag, we can alert vocational training facilities, junior colleges, even four-year universities to the gap, provide them data, potentially APIs, that enable them to create just-in-time curriculum so they can start to train and teach for the jobs that are and will be and not just the jobs that once were. And the cool thing is we started talking about that several years ago, five plus years ago, and it was the dream, it was a vision, it was true north. We're doing it today. So we're working with governments uh, all over the world, local, federal governments all over the world, literally, uh, to provide exactly that kind of data. Even for a city like LA, I was just looking at the economic graph data earlier. It's, it's amazing the insights that pop from there. So we, 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 you mentioned that roughly 50% of the jobs will be affected, at least in some way, by automation. We're sitting in... Um, my the words, the not, potential to be potential, um, uh, the creative capital of the world, yep. um, and, and not just media, art, fashion, culture, you know, food. This is it's happening here now, and I, I think we would like to think that a disproportionate share of those jobs will not be affected, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yet, we're seeing massive consolidation, which is creating a, a risk and probably an actuality of some job loss in, in media, which which does still drive a huge part of our economy. Um, what's your view on LA broadly, and you know, in the little time we have left? Um, as, a, as a guy who at least came out of media, um, love your thoughts on, on anything that's happening in media that's exciting to you that you've seen that's, that's fired, fired your, your brain up. Sure. So with regard to L.A., uh, I would start by saying anecdotally, I have people um, that I'm uh, you know, privileged to know and, and have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for who are raving about L.A., Jeff being one of them. And uh, we were talking earlier about the fact that, uh, in, in your words, it's flourishing. Uh, that the art scene and the fashion scene and the food scene and the startup scene are increasingly uh, really reaching critical mass, which is incredibly exciting because the more we can diversify where capital is flowing and innovation is coming from in this country, the better. So that's very exciting. Um, with regard to uh, the media industry, uh, I guess from the outside uh, looking in a bit, and I, I, I've always tried to maintain at least some, a few toes, if not a foot, in the, in the media world just because I love it. My dad worked at CBS for like 20 years, so I kind of grew up with media in my blood, and I was reading Variety box office grosses when I was really too young, and it's normal kid, embarrassing. Normal kid Not, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, a few different trends. You just touched on one of them. Scale. Scale matters. Scale matters in technology. Scale matters in Silicon Valley. Scale matters up in Seattle. Scale matters in LA. Uh, you can see that uh, with Disney's uh, latest move and the, the Fox assets. Uh, Fox selling, I think, is a, a really important, almost watershed mark in terms of the importance of scale. I think today, CBS and Viacom's boards were talking about whether or not they're going to come together. Everyone in the industry has got to be talking about scale. It's going to be very interesting to see where this falls out. Uh, the last few standing at the top of that stack in terms of having achieved true scale and then how those companies leverage their analog strengths to compete with the tech titans who have already obtained the scale but don't necessarily have the creative advantages and the content advantages of some of the media conglomerates. So I think that's gonna be really interesting. I think Disney, uh, the job that uh, Iger has done at Disney, uh, virtually across the board, but uh, to this day, I, <laughs> there has to be a case study written about case studies where he has successfully done acquisition integrations. It, it's kind of mind blowing. That stuff's really, really hard. And one after another after another, he keeps knocking them out of the park. So. Uh, it, it, he's, he's setting the bar very high, not just in terms of execution, but in terms of the competitive advantages that execution yields. 
the adjacent business opportunities, the channels and the windows Disney now has at its disposal, how do you compete with that? So that's one trend to keep an eye on. The second one, and it relates to that, because that's how Disney, in theory, will try to compete with Netflix, is the rise of the digital platform as distributor, and then we'll come back to digital platform as innovator. But uh, for as uh, impressive as Disney's execution has been, Netflix, over the last several years, it's, it's just mind-blowing. It's, it's mind, I would use other words, but I don't know about the, I want to introduce some expletives there, but it, it's, it's just extraordinary. And then you start to think, I mean, people said originally, is it 30 million subs, is it 50 million subs, is it 100 million subs? People now after this last one are like, is it a billion people who are going to subscribe to Netflix on a global basis? How do you compete against that scale? And it'll be very interesting to see how uh, Hulu continues to grow, what Disney does with its own proprietary effort, uh, what YouTube does, all of these companies, and what competitive advantages they bring to the table. And then, of course, there have been claims that it's peak TV now for a couple of years in terms of original content creation. But as long as these behemoths keep going at one another, there's going to be massive demand for all this original programming, which leads to the innovation piece of this. There's going to be traditional, the longer form stuff, and all those companies will continue to go hard there. But then you've got like the Katzenberg, I guess now Meg Whitman play in terms of shorter form. Uh, you've got the Snapchats of the world, the Facebooks of the world. Uh, LinkedIn is very interested in original programming within our context. And so very, very excited about the innovation that's going to take place, not just the channel management and the business models, but new forms of media and entertainment. And there's no better city uh, really in the world uh, than LA in terms of what's coming. So we we're going to put you to an HQ trivia pop-up quiz, but uh, we're out of time. Okay. So we'll save it for next time. Um, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.